and God bless you for being here this morning. I trust we're all here because of Jesus. And um, I'm, I'm really looking to Him to direct us in the remainder of our time together here. Yes, um, may the Lord give us honesty. It will maybe part of what it means to have an honest heart is to have a heart without pretense. And if our hearts are without, and our lives are without pretense, it seems to me that's when we really can hear from God. And so may each one of us be able to hear from God this morning, not from me, but from God. As you know, my text for this morning is Romans chapter 14. Let me just tell you right from the get-go that I know that I won't be able to, in the next 45 minutes, to fully cover all the nuances that are found in this particular text. But I, I, I trust that I can cover enough of it, however, to, to whet your appetite to look further into the text, to look more deeply into the text yourself. That's really my goal. I often tell my students, I don't expect to tell them everything that is in the text. But if I can make them hunger and thirst for what's in that text, and they can dig, they can dig down like they're, they're digging for gold and, and, and explore the, the, the text for themselves, then it will be much more meaningful to them. And that's true of this text here this morning. I'm asking the Lord to help me do two things this morning in this final session. And, and one of the, the things that I'm asking the Lord to do is to enable me to stay in teaching mode instead of preaching mode. I'm not sure if there's a difference, but it seems to me there might be. It's a little bit difficult for me to stay in teaching mode, although my wife likes the teaching mode much better. She likes when the preaching is cool, calm, and collected. <laughs> well, I'm not quite wired that way, but I attempt to, to, to teach once in a while. So I'm, I'm asking the Lord to uh, give me the ability to stay on teaching, in teaching mode this morning. I'm also asking the Lord to help me stay close to my notes. Uh, and um, because uh, I, I want to uh, uh, very uh, succinctly, in, in a sense, dogmatically, uh, go through parts of this text to just help us get a, a little grasp of it that is important to us. So if I become boring, you know what I'm doing. Okay? By the way, Brother Merle told me an interesting story about Joe Overholt. Uh, uh, 
probably most of you know who John Job was. But he told the story of how Job was teaching French. And uh, Noah asked him, he said that he didn't know that he knew French. And Job said something like this. Right, Mel? Uh, the way to learn French is to teach it. Well, one of the things I discovered about the Book of Romans, the way to learn the Book of Romans is to teach it. Try it sometime. It has, it has cost me, it has not only changed my life, the message of the Book of Romans, but it has cost me to hunger and thirst deeply for the deep things of God. And there's, there's very little that satisfies me as much as discovering the deep things of God. I, I don't mean intellectually complex, but truths that are profound and that are life-changing. Those are important to us. So I encourage you to uh, to uh, search the scriptures and discover those truths that can continue to change your life. I want to say that the deeper I look into this passage in Romans chapter 14, and the more often I preach on this this chapter, the, the more I'm convinced of its relevance to us as a church in the 21st century. At first, I didn't quite see it, but it's becoming clear to me that it's, it's, a, it's a very relevant passage to us, even today in the 21st chapter. Now, I'm de- deeply aware of the fact that in my exposition or attempt of exposition on this passage this morning, uh, I'm, I'm going to be only, in essence, be able to give you an introductory part of the subject matter. And, and my prayer is that the things I share in this message in, from Romans chapter 14 will cause you to look more deeply into the directives Paul gives about the eating of meat and non-eating of meat and keeping of certain holy days, etc. And as you, as you look at, at the context of Romans chapter 14, you know, the issues may be different for us, But the principles and the directives that Paul gives are timeless and are anchored in divine revelation. So I I encourage you to take Romans 14 seriously and may it uh, teach us what it means to embrace my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. And that's what I have entitled this message, Embracing Your Brother in Christ. May, may, may God bless you as we're directed to do this, that in our study of Romans chapter 14. I'm pulling the title for this study out of the passage. Right from the get-go, Paul admonishes us in verse 1 to receive, or I am, uh, I'm rephrasing that by, uh, by, with the word embrace, that we receive and embrace the one who is weak in the faith. 
receive him, Paul tells us, without feeling the need to dispute or argue with him about doubtful issues, without feeling the need to bring him around to your point of view. The rationale is that you should receive or embrace him because Christ has received him. You find that in verse 3 and also in, in chapter 15, I believe in verse 1. In fact, he says we should embrace or receive our brother or our sister in the same way that Christ has embraced or received us. And that's a huge challenge. Chapter 15, yes, it, it, it encourages us to do that, receive one another as Christ has received us. Now, most of us have difficulty grasping or appreciating the diverse ethnic and cultural mix found in the city of Rome, in this capital city of the world, as it were. Not only was there the, the big general divide between Jew and, and Gentile, but even among the Gentiles, there was there found great diversity. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 14, Paul speaks of the cultural elite, Greeks, and the uncultured barbarians. How wide was that gap? It was, it was, it was broad. <laughs> and he also uh, talked about the, those who were highly educated, the wise, and those who were unlearned and couldn't read or write, the unwise. As he refers to them as the wise and the unwise. There was also the bond and the free, meaning slaves and the free citizens of Rome. The irony of it was that sometimes the slaves were more educated than the free men. And, and the slaves sometimes were the teachers, ended up being the teachers for their children. No, no doubt this cultural and ethnic mix was evident in the membership of the church in Rome as well. Can you imagine that? Most of us are members of a church where the large majority of the membership not only have the same, a similar ethnic and cultural background, but also have a similar denominational background, which means that most of us have, a similar, have similar values and a similar worldview. I'm, I'm certainly not standing in judgment over that fact. Only to say that because of this, it's, it's hard for us to appreciate the tension points that were part of the church in the first century, especially in a place like the city of Rome. Oh, and remember that there were no denominations at that time. Can you imagine that? No denominations. So if you had a tension point with a fellow member or a difference of conviction, you couldn't just pull out and go down and join the church down the street. Because there were no denominational divisions at that particular time. 
Well, in spite of everything, I suspect we still have our weaknesses. And so it's good to look at this portion of Scripture and see how the Lord wants to deal with what we are, what are often called issues of conscience. Issues of conscience, differences of conviction, etc., can cause mistrust, feelings of ill will, and even schisms if not dealt with carefully. And so it seems to me, considering all that, and, and much more than I haven't said, uh, I say again that this, this text, Romans chapter 14, should be very relevant to us. Well, let me tell you how I intend to deal with this passage in Romans chapter 14. As you know, the, the subject matter of Romans 14 has to do with the weak and the strong. The subject matter of chapter 14 actually continues on through verse 14 or 15 of chapter 15. But I don't expect to get past chapter 14 this morning. In fact, I probably won't even get through chapter 14. But that's okay. I can, I, you know, my, my Indian, um, the Indian, my brother teachers, uh, preachers among the Indian people have taught me that, you know, when, when you come to the end, you, when it's time to sit down, they'll just say, well, that's all I have this morning and sit down. And I'll just do that. Uh, when, when the clock uh, directs me to do that and expect that the, the Lord will also direct me to do that at the right time. I'm, I'm, so, first of all, I'm going to attempt to understand the issues involved in this passage. Then I'm going to look at Romans 14, uh, sort of section by section, so that we can get a bit of a grasp as to how Paul confronts this thorny problem of issues of conscience. And so I believe it would be profitable to read the text, all of the text, Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through verse 32. Would you stand with me for the reading of the text? Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, but let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, but for God hath received them. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yet he, 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 yeah, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he does not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Isn't that a profound truth? As, as independent as we, we, we like to be, this is still true. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. And whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it, it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then they, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if, if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and joy and the holy peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that, he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God, and approved approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. Let us therefore follow after those things which make for peace. And things whereby one may edify one another. Powerful admonition to us. For meat destroy not the for meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil of, for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he allows, and he that doubteth his stand if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You may be seated. The, the first thing I'd like to do is... Um, uh, attempt to, to look at the issues that are involved uh, in, in, this, in this text. And, and of course, the first and obvious issue that is involved here is the eating of meat. You have that in verses 1 through 3. The, 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 eating of, the eating of meat was a bothersome issue in the first century church right from the get-go. It first surfaced as an issue that stood between Jew and Gentile believers in Acts chapter 15, verses, uh, verses 28 to 29. This had to do with abstaining from meat offered to idols, abstaining, also abstaining from blood, as well as eating meat from strangled animals. So brotherhood agreements were put in place. To, to deal with these and other issues in Acts chapter 15. But the, the meat offered to idols became a, a special issue in the church of Corinth. This, this could have been both a Jewish as well as a Gentile issue, really. And so Paul speaks to the issues involved in, in, as, it, as, it, uh, um, uh, as it related to the church at Corinth. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And in a lot of ways, he, he, he gives similar instructions in 1 Corinthians 8 as he does in Romans chapter 14. But, but there are also uh, 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 dissimilarities between First uh, Corinthians chapter 8 and, and Romans chapter 15. I encourage you to, to look at that carefully. Because now here, if Paul addresses the issue of me um, in, in Romans 14. And it's often assumed that the issue of Romans 14 also involves the eating of meat offered to idols. However, verse 2 and verse 21 indicate it differently. It indicates that in this context here in, 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 in Rome, it has to do with the eating of meat per se versus the eating of vegetables. So it wasn't necessarily a matter of eating meat offered to idols that was the issue, but of eating meat, per se, and versus the eating of vegetables or veggies. So the so the church ruling in in, uh, in 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 Acts chapter fifteen, uh, twenty years before in Jerusalem, didn't really deal with the problem that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 14, if you look at it carefully. So we do well to note that the use of the word meat, as it is used in verses 15, 17, and 20, in the Greek text, is a generic word for food and not for flesh. That is, meat. That only in verse 21, does it use the word meat as we normally use the word meat? Only one time. So take that into consideration. That's why I say it's, it, it wasn't so much the eating of meat offered to idols, even the eating of meat uh, that was not properly drained from its blood, but it had to do with eating of meat versus the eating of veggies. Well, the other subject here, the other issue here, had to do with the esteeming of certain days. Um, and uh, I, we're, it's, it's not sure, but this you have in verse 5 and 6, and it, it's really not sure um, what, what this involves. This may have had to do with, a keeping, uh, with keeping certain holy days that were to be observed under the Old Testament covenant, that's a possibility. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4, verse 10, speaks of those Jewish Christians who still felt under bondage to observe days, months, and years. In other words, they felt compelled by their conscience, even though they were uh, believers in Christ and, 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 and redeemed and, and, and uh, uh, justified and sanctified, <clears throat> yet they felt uh, a certain... Uh, restriction as it relates uh, relates to certain days 
and months and years. It could have been the issue of keeping the Lord's Day here uh, versus keeping the Sabbath day, or the observing of the Jewish feast days, such as Passover, Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Tabernacles. One um, of the issues of conscience for me is really more than in itself uh, is more than an issue of conscience. Was uh, honoring Sunday as a day of rest? Yes, it was definitely an issue of conscience for me. And I would say it was even a collection. And it's still that way with me. And I, I remember well when I first realized that there were Christians who obviously didn't have that sensitivity. And at that time, I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, so I didn't do anything. I, I was only 22 or 3 years old. And I was living in El Salvador. Right on the uh, on the edge of the village of Sitio del Nino, and uh, we lived in this village where there were a few believers of the Pentecostal persuasion, uh, and uh, and and we had a ping pong table on the front porch of the house of our VS unit that we lived in, and and so. We would, we, we fellows especially, would, we have four of us fellows, and two girls, and a, and a, and a couple. And so we fellows um, would play ping pong evenings and some days, sometimes Sunday afternoons. But we discovered, I discovered that these Christians from the village, there were Christians in the village of Sitio del Nino, thought playing ping pong was engaging in worldly activities. Didn't compute with me. And that Christians really shouldn't engage in. However, those same Christians would would, uh, walk by our house on Sunday afternoon and I would notice their, their scolding brows as they looked at us playing ping pong on the front porch as they walked by on their way to work in the field. <laughs> How do you handle that? <laughs> well... Say that uh, you know, I to me um, honoring the Lord on 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 on, on Sunday is, to me is still important. Uh, that didn't cause me to throw out that uh, that sensitivity. I thought it was important to me, and it always bothered me. Now, you can decide whether I was strong or weak here. But it always bothered me when we were living up north and uh, we had 
young people come up to help us with vacation Bible school, they still look out. Maybe six or eight, a group of six or eight young people. And, and it, it always bothered me when, when, when our, our VBS would end on Friday, and they would stay over to go fishing on Saturday. And I couldn't blame them for that. I like to fish, too. And then they would start home on Sunday morning and drive all the way home and even through the night so that they could be at work on Monday morning. To me, it seemed like there was something wrong with that. Can you identify with this? You don't have to raise your hand. But think about it with me. My question is, is this an issue of conscience? Or is this deeper than that? I'm just throwing that out for you to reflect on. Because uh, these are some of the things that we need to uh, wrestle with as we come to this passage in uh, Romans chapter 14. Well, the important thing is not that we perfectly understand the exact, exactly what the issues were that created the conflict in Romans 14. But it is important to understand that there are issues that are neither right nor wrong in themselves. And, and that, in a sense, is what Paul was talking about here in Romans chapter 14 in the first half of Romans chapter 3. There, there were these immoral issues. They were issues of individual conscience. <clears throat> Eating meat was not sin in itself. But one could sin against one's own conscience if one felt that eating meat <coughs> was a moral transgression. One could also sin against one's brother if one arrogantly ignored his sensitive conscience. And Paul speaks to that here. So, uh, perhaps uh, what we could do uh, next here is uh, see how the, the weak and the strong are characterized here in, uh, in this passage. It's important to understand, in understanding Romans 14, who the weak and the strong are. And so, the first thing that Paul says in, in, in chapter 14, verse 1, is him that is weak in the faith receive you. And that's a doubtful disposition. And so, one who is weak in the faith, what does it mean that one is weak in the faith? Let me throw out a few things to you. I, I'm not going to be able to be totally conclusive on some of these things, but I, I, I invite you to think deeply about this. One who is weak in the faith is not necessarily one who has weak faith or is a spiritual weakling. I believe we also must refrain from characterizing him that is weak in the faith and think of himself as a legalist. It's easy to do that, isn't it? 
But a legalist is one who mixes law and grace, and, and did that in the New Testament. Or, or law and good work, or, or law, yes, faith and good works, as a means of salvation, as a means of being made right with God. That, in, in, in my mind, in essence, is a legalism. Paul never tolerated legalism from that perspective and addresses the error of legalism in his letter to the Galatians as well as in Colossians chapter 2. We also must not confuse, and we do confuse the issue, if we attempt to superimpose the contemporary terms liberal and conservative on, uh, onto the terms weak and strong. So I, I feel like we, we should not superimpose our concept of liberalism and conservatism onto these terms, weak and strong. Perhaps one characteristic of one who is, uh, is weak is that he misinterprets that certain scriptures, or at least misapplies them. <coughs> I'm, I'm thinking of an example of a brother at, that... Uh, was a faith Christian when, when we moved there uh, 12 years ago, and this, this brother is not living there anymore, but uh, this brother, a faith Christian, um, was uh, thought that it was wrong to study the scriptures and eat at the same time. And so he based his conviction on First Peter chapter four and verse three, where it talks about the evil of banqueting. And so uh, uh, during that time, uh, our, our men would get together uh, one at least one Saturday a month and have a breakfast together. In fact. The men would make the breakfast. We'd have breakfast together, and then we had a Bible study together. And he never attended because he thought it was wrong. Because that he equated to banqueting. Well, in my mind, he was misinterpreting the scripture. But perhaps this is one of the characteristics of the week is the misapplication of, of scriptures like that. And then there are those who fail to or refuse to think through issues to their logical conclusion. We have a brother in the church that feels very strongly he feels very strongly that the King James Version is the only true viable translation of the Bible. Well, you notice that I, I preach from the King James Version. I have appreciation for the King James Version. But I don't believe that it's the only translation. Now, I do have problems 
with people that that uh, only read what I call free translations, like uh, the Message by Peterson, or even the NIV, because I find that the NIV has a certain amount of interpretation of Scripture in, rather than uh, actual translation. So, uh, so to, to use the NIV and, and, and only the NIV to me is uh, a bit uh, questionable. <laughs> but this brother feels very strongly. Um, he goes as far to, to declare that, that the King James Version is the original text. <laughs> well, he, he would love to, to have, have the church created rather than agreement. Well, I've also discovered that it's not profitable to discuss this matter with this brother. Um, because, well, what can I say? He has his mind made up. <laughs> and, um, um, and so, um, my question is, is he, is he a weak brother? Or is he a stubborn brother? <laughs> well, I don't have to answer that. I, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to solve that, that question. I, I'm not going to solve that, that question. Um, because, uh, but uh, I, I am determined to receive him, to keep receiving him as my brother. And I don't feel the need to attempt to correct him anymore. Or, uh, yeah, okay, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but what does it mean that him that is weak in the faith? I, we need to think carefully about this. Let me put forth a few uh, uh, suggestions here. A few, uh, yes, um, this is more than a suggestion. A preacher doesn't just suggest. Uh, so here, here is uh, here is uh, one thing. I, I think that him that is weak in the faith has a, has what I call a weak moral constitution. I take this from Hebrews chapter five verse fourteen, where it speaks of those who are undeveloped in their moral sensitivities. They have not had their what uh, what the, the writer to the Hebrews uh, calls has not had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. <clears throat> and so, uh, in other words, one who is weak in the faith is one who has not allowed his faith in Christ to strengthen his ability to properly determine what is right and wrong, what is ethically right and wrong, this this causes us as brother to be over scrupulous and over sensitive in relation to issues that are neither right nor wrong. <laughs> this then can come from 
this can come from his or her past religious training or his past sinful lifestyle. This is why him that is weak in the faith, to me, could either have been of Jewish background or of Gentile pagan background. The one is extremely scrupulous because of his or own strong ethical training, and the other is scrupulous in reaction to his or her past sinful lifestyle. The fact of the matter is that when one is one becomes a new creature in Christ, Second Corinthians five seventeen, and I know that it says that, that you know one who is a new creature in Christ, all things become. Uh, new. And, and, and I believe that, but, but let me also say that one doesn't necessarily come with minds totally like, like total empty slates. One is not all of a sudden free from all of the biases and the influences from his past training and, and life influences. Uh, two examples of this. A Jewish person who was carefully brought up according to the law of Moses to be very careful to avoid the, the meat of any unclean animal as well as meat that was not killed in a proper manner, so the meat was the meat was probably drained from its blood. He, he was furthermore very sensitive to never eat meat offered to idols. He was also carefully taught to honor the Sabbath and all holy days. Such a person would not all of a sudden feel as a result of embracing Christ, feel totally free from all of the restraints of his ethical training as a result of having embraced Christ and his atoning death for his salvation. Now, a Gentile pagan person who lived a very immoral, loose, self-indulgent life of sin and perversity is saved by the power of the gospel and can now be repulsed by his or past life of excess of revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. Such a person is so repulsed by his or past life that he or she determines as a believer to give up all meat, including delicious hands and, and, uh, and keyboard sticks and live a disciplined life of a vegetarian. You, you, you see that, what I'm trying to say? It seems to me that these two persons can be referred to as having, not as having weak faith, but as what Romans 14 calls weak in the faith. Because he has, as I am uh, attempting to found and convince you that he has um, he is uh, one who has what I have called a weak moral constitution. And, and one who is weak in the faith is also one who has a weak conscience. This comes through in, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. One who has a weak conscience often deals with a supersensitive conscience, a conscience that is over-scrupulous, and, and such a Christian cannot live with confidence and freedom in Christ. Now, uh, quite often, 
there are students at SMBI that come to SMBI and are, are wrestling with this issue of supersensitive conscience. And they cannot rest easily in Christ. They're not sure if they said something that was wrong or if they didn't. But they're afraid to give, and this disturbs their peace. Do you understand? I was there at one time. <laughs> so it hinders them from living with confidence and freedom in Christ. And now, Romans 14 does not mention the conscience per se in its reference to the one who is weak. However, the conscience is indirectly referenced throughout this chapter, especially as to what results when the weak brother is causing is caused to stumble in verses 19 to 23. And of course, 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 speak more directly to the issues of conscience as it relates to eating and of the body. I believe it, it, we do well to take uh, into consideration the issues of conscience as we look to interpret Romans chapter 14. We're given three guidelines in the following scripture as it relates to the conscience, whether your own conscience or the conscience of your brother in Christ. Well, number one, do not violate your own conscience. You must not violate your conscience. And do not violate your conscience, your, your Christian brother's conscience. And, and do not cause your Christian brother to violate his conscience. And so, uh, take these things into consideration as it relates to him that is weak in the faith. It has to do with the conscience, and, and, and you need, we, we, need to, um, we, we need to think clearly about these things. You know, uh, one, of the, one of the unique things um, about this matter is that I have found very few people who see themselves as being weak in the faith. I've checked with my students. I said, raise your hand if you would say you're weak in the faith. And I wonder what would happen if I would, would do that this morning. I'm not going to do it. But I've had very few people who think they are weak in the faith. We all tend to think we're the strong ones, right? <laughs> there might be a few otherwise, but they're the oddball. So, uh, so yes, um, they, and, and so the weak and the strong. <laughs> Interesting enough, Paul only uses that designation the strong ones in this extended passage, and that's in chapter 15, verse one. He doesn't use the word strong otherwise, but but we we know when he's referring to to the strong. Also, Romans 14 does not clearly characterize the one that is strong, but leans heavily on the strong one to be sensitive and to support him that is weak. Can I say that again? Throughout this passage, the Apostle Paul leans heavily, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, leans heavily on the strong one to be sensitive and support him that is weak. 
And, and Paul identifies himself with those who are strong in verse 1 of chapter 15. From other passages, we can detect certain characteristics of those who are strong. And I, I believe that uh, one of the characteristics of those who are strong is that they are healthy, mature believers who have allowed the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to teach, and does so through the Word of God, and to teach and enlighten their moral sensitivities so that they have a good sense of right and wrong. I go back to, to Hebrews chapter 5 again. Read that passage sometime. And, and uh, secondly, the strong have a, have a good and pure conscience. Hebrews 9.14 talks about their, our conscience being purged from dead works so that we can properly serve the living God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 speaks of holding the faith and a good conscience. That's important. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, talks about holding the faith, the mystery of the faith, in a pure conscience. See, the issue of the conscience and the role it plays in the life of a child of God is an important one to understand and to respect. A, a person's conscience is usually formed during childhood and adolescence through the teaching of parents and other significant adults in their lives. You know, your, your conscience is like an arrow, the arrow of a compass that points due north, and it tells you how to live. You know, um, and, and so, uh, uh, you know, I, in northwestern Ontario, I, I very seldom went out into the woods, even out into the, the big lakes where there were many, many islands, and you could easily get lost without, at least in the beginning of my time there, without without uh, the use of a compass. I, I depended on that. It was only once that a compass failed me. And that was when, when uh, my, uh, my two youngest daughters had said to me before we left Northwestern Ontario, and they, they, they were hunting with me, hunting moose with me at the time they were 16. And they said to me, Dad, we, we need to do another moose hunt before we leave Northwestern Ontario. Let's do a fly-in moose hunt. And so I arranged it, and we did. We, we drove north to Pickle Lake, and from there we hired a plane. They took us and all of our equipment and, and two canoes, and I had another fellow with me. And we flew 50 miles into the wilderness, and he dropped us off at a, at a pothole of a lake that had a river coming in and going out. And we landed on that river, and... and uh, hunted uh, up in that, ran on that lake and set up camp for a week and hunted uh, on the river. Well, one evening, uh, just before dark, we were coming back toward the camp and just coming back from the river from, and, uh, and came close to the, the lake and where, when there was a big bull moose that uh, sat on the shoreline. And, and, and my daughter, uh, Christina, at that time, uh, she, she, she dropped him right on the floor. And, and before we could, before they could get up to him, suddenly he, he got up and started running and ran into the woods. And uh, we tried to find him and follow him, 
but it just kept going. And it was getting dark, so we said, well, we'll wait till tomorrow morning. The next morning, we came back and tracked that moose back into the wilderness, back into the, the uh, Canadian bush for a mile or more. And it just never stopped. It just kept going. So we determined he was not able to lose us. But on our way back, we're, we're, we, you know, you get into these situations, and finally you don't know which is up or down. I mean, you don't know which is, and there was no, no snow on the ground, and, and we couldn't follow our tracks back, and so, you know, suddenly you said, where are we? I mean, and, and I got out my compass, and the compass said, go this way. That was due north, and we needed to go due north. This way, and we came out where we were supposed to go. What was what was happening? Well, because of the iron ore in close to the surface of the ground in that area, the compass just wasn't accurate. That's the only time I I found the compass to be wrong. But but I'm saying that the the arrow of the compass is like your conscience. Uh, you. you you must pay attention to it. And so the, the strong have a good and pure conscience. And, uh, and but I also would, would uh, uh, say this, and add this, that one's conscience can be taught or enlightened and retrained by Scripture. And uh, I praise God for that. Uh, it can redirect us in, in that kind of way. And, and it's possible that one who is weak in the faith, one who is strong, has had his conscience trained by the Word of God. Thus, the conscience is important. And, and the uh, the... The third thing about one who is strong is one who has knowledge or understanding. And this is really related to the first characteristic mentioned here. In verse 14, Paul says that I know that there is nothing unclean in itself, and in essence is free to eat meat, free from quenches of conscience. But the weak do not have this understanding. Well, um, let me let me just quickly, because my time is up, I'll give you a uh, a few um, points in overview in relation to this. I, I realize that uh, I I haven't totally comprehensively covered this, and maybe not even answered all of your questions in relation to this. But take these things into consideration: principles to guide us in dealing with issues of conscience. We should receive one another as Christ has received us. That's 14.1.15.7. We should not despise or judge one another. That's verses 4 through 12. Because uh, before God, a man stands or falls. He is the, the ultimate judge that can judge correctly. 
We must be sensitive to the strong, must be sensitive to his brother's conscience. Verses 13 to 23. And I must uh, close with two, looking at two interesting statements. And one of them is that in verse 14 and also found in verse 20, when he says that nothing is unclean of itself. I believe that this statement is a qualifying statement. And in the context, this is speaking of that which is not moral, a moral issue in itself. Meat, even if it has been offered to idols or is from the unclean animal, really cannot contain the soul or contaminate the soul with sin. That is what Paul is talking about. And Paul insists in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, that every creature of God is good if it is received with thanksgiving. So that's one, one statement that we need to take consideration. And the other one is a broad statement when it says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You know, when it comes to dealing with controversial issues, especially when the issues are in themselves neither right or wrong, it is important to keep the central issue in focus. I, think, I feel that this is what Paul is saying. And the important thing is not that I am able to express my liberty in food and drink, that I enjoy my meat in spite of how it affects my brother. The essence of the Christian life is righteousness, having a right relationship with God. It also has to do with peace, not only having peace with God, but peace with my brother. This is shalom. This is the shalom that, that, that uh, brings the wholeness of fellowship, uh, uh, what the Greek calls koinonia. And when there is a right relationship with God, and shalom and peace and fellowship, there's also joy. And so we're told in verses 19 to 20 to follow after those things that make for peace and those things that build up one another than, than hindering, uh, that, that hindering or might hinder or destroy uh, the work of God in the life of our brother. Paul ends this section by reminding us not to offend our weaker brother by flaunting his, our, our liberties. Verses 22 and 23 speaks of having faith or doing something out of faith. I believe this is referring to living according to our convictions. We should not flaunt our convictions or cause others to violate their convictions. Happy or blessed is he who has no reason to invite the judgment of God on himself for what he approves. God bless you as you consider these things. And uh, I, I trust that uh, this has been instructive for you this morning.